Good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. This week, we say goodbye to the queen of the skies, the Boeing 747. Seattle Public Schools students and educators push for more support for ethnic studies. An attack of the fungi goes from silver screen to reality real quick with some stomach-churning research. UW professor Kemi Adeyemi and author Jodianne Bury are here to break down the week. But first, let's get you caught up. Seattle City Council member Teresa Mosqueda plans to run for the King County Council. Mosqueda says the departure of her four fellow council members was not a factor in her decision. Instead, she says the County Council is an opportunity to serve a larger, more diverse community. Her current term runs through 2025, but if she wins the King County Council race, a successor would need to be appointed until there's an election. In business news, Amazon sales increased 9% in the fourth quarter to a number so big you probably can't comprehend it. Okay, okay, $149.2 billion. Still, profits were weaker than anticipated due to a hefty investment in the electric automaker Riven, which didn't pan out. Similar mixed news for Starbucks. The company reported $8.71 billion in revenue, which fell short of analysts' estimates. Net sales were up 8%. And don't be fooled by the recent sunny weather. It's still winter around here. The National Weather Service says you can expect rain and wind gusts up to 45 miles an hour today. It'll stay breezy through tomorrow with rain in the forecast till Monday. The next round of wind could arrive on Tuesday. Heyo, it's Friday again. This week, Seattle City Council member Tammy Morales announced her run for re-election. And as we mentioned in the headlines, her fellow council member Teresa Mosqueda announced she's running for a different seat with a larger venue on the King County Council. The Seattle Storm's Brianna Stewart announced she's leaving. The power forward is heading back home to play for the New York Liberty. And it's Black History Month. It's a great reminder to continue to reflect on the sacrifices made by black people and celebrate the many triumphs. There are tons of events in the city this month. The Columbia Theater, Wanawari, and Sister Sister Burlesque all have events this month, just to name a few. Check them out. Kemi Adeyemi is here. She's a UW professor of gender, women, and sexuality studies and the director of the Black Embodiment Studio at the University of Washington. Kemi, really glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Jodi Ann Bury is here too. She's an author, speaker, and host of the podcast Black Cancer. Hey, Jodi Ann, welcome to the show again. Hi, hi, hi. So Boeing rolled out the last 747 this week. It was an emotional event for the thousands of people who turned out to say farewell to the line at the company's factory in Everett Tuesday afternoon. The plane changed air travel by making it affordable, and there's a lot of nostalgia attached to that time period. In the 70s, air travel was an event, like an exciting one, and that's hard to imagine these days. Kemi, do you remember what it was like for you the first time you were on a plane? Absolutely not. Not at all. (laughs) No no memory whatsoever. And I'm kind of jealous of people who like can tell you the different numbers of the planes and what they mean and where they go and where they fly. But unless we're talking about like the make and model of like a Honda, 
I have no idea <laughs> what we're talking about as far as planes go. But the 747 U-2 is one of the largest planes in the air. It has stairs. It's iconic. 34 tons, this plane, but of course not fuel efficient. And that's one of the reasons the airline is retiring it. You know, I used to travel professionally and I think doing so is what got me on those really big planes. You know, the double aisles, there's hundreds of people on the flight. I think my first flight like that was to Ghana in 2008. Yeah, international travel is where it's at. Oh, yeah. Jody Ann, air travel has become more like a bus line in the sky, at least for most travelers at this point. What matters most to you when you're booking a flight? Oh, Lord Jesus. What matters most to me is having an aisle seat. (laughs) (laughs) The aisle seat is like the most controlling personality, you know, profile. People who sit in the aisles. Uh, That checks out. (laughs) I switched from the window to the aisle at some point in the last few years because I thought the window was like a space of comfort, but really it's like a space of entrapment. And so I moved to the aisle and I feel all powerful when I'm there. John Travolta was at the ceremony, which is kind of weird. Apparently he's pilot and 747 certified. I don't want to get on a plane flown by John Travolta. Absolutely not. (laughs) They make that announcement and I am deplaning immediately. Do you like to see the pilot before you get on a plane? No, uh uh-uh. I like the abstraction. I like just sort of getting into the space and somehow we arrive. And then I like the little treat of when you deplane and then they're there. And it's like this reminder that, you know, maybe it wasn't just a computer that got you from point A to B. Maybe there was a human there, but... As far as entering the plane, I just want to pretend like all I'm doing is sitting in this space and magically arriving at my destination. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That actually reminded me because I checked out some of the videos of how they put the planes together. There are thousands of hands (laughs) that touch this, like actual human beings are putting these things together. There are people's fingerprints all over this. And that That actually touched me. It warmed my cold heart. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. You know, it really was the engineers and designers who put this plane together, whose heart and soul went into this plane. And the most nostalgia is probably packed in for them. But that's actually a good transition because we're saying goodbye to the 747 and hello to the 737. Boeing engineers and factory workers got good news this week that the company is going to start assembling that 737 line in Everett by mid 2024. Now, Kemi, you know, we hear a lot about tech jobs around here, but I actually think this is super good news because this diversified workforce is really important because these advanced manufacturing jobs provide a universe of employment opportunities for people in this area. Yeah, I think we're so used to, uh, I come from Minnesota, I come from the upper Midwest, and I think we're so used to the dismantling of the manufacturing industry. And we're very familiar with how that can decimate, you know, the, or certainly the economic livelihood of, of a region, but also the demographic uh, livelihood of a region. So I'm glad to hear that there's a kind of replacement line that's going to be instituted. And hopefully the workers in the meantime aren't having to like be shipped off to other locations to set up other lines. And so hopefully people have some sort of continuity uh, between the 747 and the 737. But yeah, the diversity of the workforce is something that Seattle needs to continue thinking about and continuing to try to maintain if the city wants to remain like 
uh, interesting, let alone sort of like culturally and economically viable uh, in the in the national market, but also the global market. A hundred percent cosign on all of that. So I'm really excited to see what happens. As someone who's been in the region just shy of a decade, I'm really excited to learn more and see more of Seattle um, beyond tech. Yeah. And, you know, just to put a button on this, all you had to do was listen to the employees of Boeing who were rejoicing the fact that there was a new line coming in here. And one of them went as far as to say, this means my kid can probably go to college right? Mm -hmm. This is an investment in the area that's super meaningful to people who work this line. All right, moving on. The College Board is stripping down the AP curriculum for African-American studies. Now, the change removes authors like Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks, ta Coates, authors associated with critical race theory, queer experience, or Black feminism. The change will also remove topics like Black Lives Matter from the curriculum and add Black conservatism as a potential research topic. Starting Monday, Seattle educators, students, and parents are going to start a week-long series of actions, protests, and events celebrating the fight for Black lives in education. Kemi, I want to start with you. The head of the college board, David Coleman, told the New York Times the changes were all made for pedagogical reasons, that these changes came from the input of professors. Your professor, what's your read on this? He's lying. Mm. <laughs> He's lying. My read on this, you know, we shouldn't even be investing in standards and metrics that are distributed by for-profit organizations. I know the College Board says it's like a nonprofit organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fact of the matter is that this is like a cash cow uh, program. And it is in their financial interests to streamline um, the AP African American Studies curriculum in order to ensure that schools and districts keep buying it. This whole debate is depressing for the ways that it is turning everybody's attention to a particular sort of curricular focus on African-American life in order to make us forget the fact that this is all a for-profit industry. There's like many different lenses to think about their stripping of the curriculum. And that's the lens that's like at the foremost of my mind right now. Students will still have an edited version of this. It will keep in redlining discrimination and Afrofuturism. Is that a starting point? It's certainly a starting point. I mean, best case scenario, students who are able to tap into this curriculum have a a launching pad. My worry is, uh, and this is like a worry about any kind of curricular plan, what about all of those people for whom their only point of access is going to be that one class and who aren't um, given the tools and the skills to figure out how to research beyond it? That's the worry. What resources are schools being given or teachers being given in order to then resource the students to look beyond what that kind of set of readings are and to have the skills to like find those other books that have been eliminated, but also learn how to read them. You can give people a bunch of books, but they have to have the sort of network to be able to think about and process those books, right? And so um, as far as like, Uh, inaugurating a community network of like intellectual curiosity, it's a starting point, but we, we, I think, are responsible to our students far beyond that. Yeah. Jodianne, what do you think 
in this age of information and disinformation? How critical is this standard? What I find so disheartening (laughs) about this kind of no information campaign is that I don't know how you ready our future without having a basic understanding of Black Lives Matter and what that is doing and continues to do in this time. I don't know how you can imagine that Bell Hooks isn't a critical part of college readiness. You know, she started writing her first book, Ain't I Woman, Black Women and Feminism, when she was 19. You know, I learned about that book and read that for the first time in college when I was 19. And I felt like it was too late, right? And that book changed the trajectory of my intellectual development. I can only wonder what could happen for students now if they had access to this type of information, not just through this very limited AP class, but through multiple touch points to be learning from people who are really pushing the boundaries of how we can talk about this country, right? And the place of the people in it. Well, it's top of mind for a lot of people here in Seattle, educators and students. They're taking the school board to task. They want more support for critical race theory and ethnic studies, and they want material support, according to Puget Sound Black Lives Matter at school. That means fully funding these programs and studies, baking it right into the curriculum. So I wonder if young people and educators are capable of shifting this conversation here, especially locally. I mean, absolutely. I think young people have always been at the forefront of institutionalizing ethnic studies in particular. Um, So there's sort of no worry there in a a nice way. Like they will advocate for what they need and what they want, and they will find support within and beyond the institutions that they're uh, housed in. I'm excited to see what, what they ask for and to see what we can do to help them get it. Yeah. Young people have a way of cutting through all the chatter to get the message out that they want to get out. And in this case, you know, local students are asking for more counselors and not cops. Next week, Tuesday, young people and educators are gathering at Roosevelt High School to talk about real safety, what it means to them. Speaking of staying safe, mushroom lovers, listen up. Our planet is warming and new research shows that fungi may become more dangerous through adaptive behaviors. New research from Duke University determined raised temperatures caused a pathogenic fungus known as Cryptococcus neoformans to turn its adaptive responses into overdrive. This thing is a survivor. Heat increases its number of genetic changes, some of which might presumably lead to higher heat resistance and maybe greater disease-causing potential. Are either one of you watching The Last of Us? Let's just start here. Absolutely. (laughs) I just watched it a couple days ago. I think I stayed up until 3 a.m. Terrified. They're going to get us. (laughs) They're coming for us. (laughs) If you're not familiar, it's an HBO series where people become infected with a type of fungus that turns them into zombies that eat people. I made it about 10 minutes. No, I will not say that's not true. 10 minutes. I made it to the first violent sucking of... (laughs) flesh. And I looked at my husband and I said, we have an hour more to go here. I can't. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. Does this worry either one of you beyond this this series? I take some comfort in the idea that what is going to take us all out cannot be stopped. Mm. You know, there's no human intervention that can happen. The fungi are our superiors now. Uh, and you just have to wait until 
it arrives on your doorstep. I take some comfort in that deep apocalypse, uh, whereas like other <laughs> disaster narratives and films and, and scenarios, there's a there's an anxiety to like, okay, well, I, what can I do? You know, I've made my little go bag for when mm-hmm. the big earthquake hits. So, you know, we should be afraid of nature. And I feel like this is just a really good reminder, <laughs> you know? That uh, just at the same time as we're trying to ban books uh, in Florida, the plants are going to get trying us. to kill us. <laughs> yep. So do, you know, make the best of your life while you can. It's tragic. <laughs> Dozens of fungal species already kill some 1.5 million people every year. And valley really? fever. Yes. And valley fever is increasing, which right now is mostly limited to the southern states. But it is migrating, which is part of this interest in this research and a little scary for people who are immunocompromised. I am sure Washington mycologists are going to start doing some damage control for mushrooms. Not all mushrooms campaign on the way. Not all mushrooms <laughs> campaign coming. I will I will say this because, you know, I've read that Duke study and they, it literally says, but for the most part, healthy people have nothing to worry about. And I'm just like, is this not COVID? Is this not every type of major public health um, situation that if it impacts people who are quote unquote unhealthy, which our minds turn into some type of morality judgment <laughs> based on them and their quote unquote life choices and not like environmental racism and um, capitalism and all of these other things. But if they if it impacts this set of folks over there, then it's okay. But then mm. if it increases and now it's taking quote unquote healthy, quote unquote good people, then it becomes a problem. And so I think it could be really interesting, critical, important to prioritize and understand the folks who are already um, being so impacted by fungi. And I will say this though, I'm glad that this stuff is happening when The Last of Us is happening. I think like public health communication 101 is to not use fear or shame because they're not effective strategies for behavior change or, or persuasion. But I'm all about it. Like, release the zombies. I want to see people doing, like, flash mob, Last of Us, zombie apocalypse cosplay in, like, major cities or something. And, like, maybe that'll you know, change some legislation. I don't know what it'll take. Be careful. Practice good foraging, Seattle. Thanks to my guest, Kemi Adeyemi, a UW professor of gender, women, and sexuality studies, and the director of the Black Embodiments Studio at the University of Washington, and Jody Ann Bury, author, speaker, and host of the podcast, Black Cancer. Thanks so much for hanging out, you two. Thank you. This Thank was you great. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Oh, I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Brandy Fullwood produced today's show. The show is also produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Claire McGrain, Jenny Cecil Moore, Vaughn Jones, and Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you Monday. Thank you.